We're in Acts chapter 11 this morning. take verses 1 through 18. Hear the holy word of our holy God. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter began speaking, proceeding to explain to them an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky came right down to me. And when I fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the crawling creatures, and the birds of the air. I heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared in the house in which I was staying, and having been sent to me from Caesarea, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He reported to us how how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Holy God, you are a holy God. And we pray now, Lord, for your worship, that you would have mercy upon me, Holy Spirit, guide me and direct me, thou my great Jehovah, that the words of my heart, the words of my lips would be in agreement with your word. Even my tone would be honorable to you, Lord. And for all of us, that we would receive your word by faith and we'd cherish it in our hearts. And Lord, insofar as what's said is true according to your word, that we would labor to put these things into practice, Lord, as an expression of our gratitude for the great salvation that you've given us. Lord, teach us that we are saved people and we're called to live a holy life, to adorn a holy gospel, holy law, holy gospel, as an expression of our thanksgiving. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What I want to do with this passage, I'm I'm not intending on preaching everything that I can find here. There's a lot here in these 18 verses. And I'm going to pluck out a couple of larger themes from this particular passage. If you look at verse 2, this is really going to dictate what I'm going to preach. One and two. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also received the word of God. That this comes when, on the heels of obviously chapter 10, 
Peter went to Cornelius and preached the gospel. And so the other people in Judea, he was in Joppa, um, they, they heard that he went and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And then verse 2, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with Peter, saying you went to uncircumcised people, you, you gave them the gospel. And so I want to look at, um, the Holy Spirit records for us one instance in which one servant of Christ, Peter, is being criticized by another group of, of servants of Christ, these Jewish Christians, and they're criticizing Peter, the servant, for evangelizing another group of people <laughs> and being the Gentiles. And, and they are offended with Peter because they dislike or they don't love the Gentiles. So they criticize his preaching, his evangelizing. And so we have the criticism put forth. And then essentially what we have in this passage is Peter's defense. And, and that's, that's what we have. That's the general doctrine. So if you miss the rest, if I, if I talk too fast and you miss what I say, that's what's going on. This is the criticism of Peter's evangelism to Gentiles because the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. And then Peter's saying, I, I didn't do wrong. I did right. So it's a defense. Criticism, defense. I'm going to argue at the end of my sermon, I think that in general what we're looking at is a church court. I'm, I'll get to that business maybe, but, but that's kind of a secondary point as regards to the venue of now, let me give us a general definition of evangelism, and, and uh, forgive me if some of this is just so simple, uh, but I think it's necessary to start with, since this is a defense of evangelism, let's get at what at least what I think evangelism is. Um, evangelism is the giving out of the good news. It's declaring in some way the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the, the Greek word, I, at least I, the root word is evangel. So Jesus is the evangel. He's the good news. It's the, the angels at the Annunciation. We have good news of great joy for all the people. Remember that? For all the people, not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Jesus is the good news. And the good news of Jesus is that he is the answer for our bad news. The bad news is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. That's the bad news. And the bad news is the wages of every sin is death, even eternal separation from God. That's the bad news. And the good news answers that. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's that sin atoner, God reconciler, peace bringer, all of those things. So that's the good news. And so evangelism is the public, it's the giving of away of that information. We saw in our text and he will speak words to you by which you and your whole household will be saved. So evangelism is the words about Jesus. Jesus' person, Jesus' work, particularly his atoning of sins, substitutionary sacrifice. And the way that evangelism is done primarily, I suppose you could do it in sign language and I'm not being cute, but it's either, it's either verbally or in writing. It's the giving out of the content of the gospel about Christ as savior of sinners and that we're being called to repent of our sins and believe upon Christ and then we'll be saved. So ordinarily or mainly evangelism is done orally or vocally. You are preaching or teaching or speaking. In this case, 
he had gone to a home. If you were a teacher of anything, but particularly if you're a teacher of, of Bible things, the venues do dictate how you teach. They do shape how you interact, how you disseminate the gospel. I was had the privilege of ministering at a funeral um, Friday, maybe 20 people, and we were in a portico. There was no lectern, and there were 20 seats under a little tent. Well, it's, it's much different than this. And then if I could change the venue to your kitchen table, you can evangelize, but it's, it, it changes with, with the venue. It, not the content, but the manner, I would argue. So it's the giving out, it's the preaching. But also, you can, in writing, you can evangelize in writing. If there are places that you can't go, you can evangelize in writing, obviously. Because let, let me give us two passages that summarize the content of evangelism. This is when we are evangelizing, this is the content. So not all truths in the Bible are necessarily evangelizing. All truths in the Bible are good. And I don't think all truths in the Bible are necessarily to give it to all people at all times, but that's another time. But all truth in the Bible is not the same thing as evangelizing. Evangelizing is a specific content. And I'm going to read two passages which I think get at that. John chapter 3. This is classic. Everyone raised in any kind of church, you know this. John three fourteen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but I have eternal life, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him, Christ, is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So those truths are God in the flesh has come to, to pay for our sins and he's been given to us as that sin atoner and what moved the Father to do this and the Son and the Spirit is love. And the kind of people that God loves are people like us. Um, the Bible says maybe for a good man some of us would die. I think I would die for my wife. I think I would die for my children and my grandsons. I think I would. I would be afraid to die but I think I would. Would I die for the homeless person who's a drug addict on the street? No, I, I wouldn't. I, I, I can't make the comparison because I don't think the comparison between me and the homeless drug addict on the street is great enough from God to us. Right? We're, we're infinitely less than the drug addict on the street worse and God loves that kind of people and he sends the son and the son is sent second passage I want to read to get at the business of evangelism the giving away of this business is Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 I love this one I could ask people are, is anyone in this room weary is anyone tired I'm 58, and there are many occasions in life where you just, I keep telling my wife, I've been telling her this since September, I just want to take a break. I just need to catch, I need to catch my breath. If I could catch my breath, vocationally, physically, filially, if I could catch my breath. The problem is there's no secret day that you all don't have that I have to catch my breath, right? 
If anybody here is weary, you are just, can I take a break where every, I go to my happy place. This is the giving of the good news. Matthew 11, Jesus says this, I love this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I know we're Calvinists. <laughs> this is the sovereignty of God. Even the Arminian usually is an inconsistent Calvinist. Everybody that believes the Bible believes this. Anyone to whom the Son wills him. Now look at what he says next. This is evangelism. Come to me. That's a, I know that in Greek. I'm not good at Greek, but I know that one. That's a duote. That's a command. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Come to me who? The good ones, the great ones. Come to me. Look at, look at the invitation. All who are weary and heavy laden, and heavy laden with our sin, who are weary of our sin. And what does Jesus say? This is the Jeremiah. And I'll give you rest. Not my teachings will give you rest. Not my... Dis- it's I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Oh, boy. So when we are evangelizing, if we're evangelizing, we're giving away the information of Jesus, his person, his work. We're giving away the one who is gentle and humble in heart. Imagine evangelizing like this. You rotten sinners, you're all going to hell. Did Jesus run around saying that? The only people he really had some hard words to say was Matthew 23. Woe unto you, you Pharisees. He was so gentle he wouldn't. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't say, if you don't believe in me, you're judged. We just read it. But he's gentle. I'm not saying that there isn't ever a time to increase our intensity and all of those things. Of course, there are those occasions. Um, But we're giving away the Lamb of God, who's meek and gentle and loving, so much so that he forgives sinners and he changes us from sinners into saints. That's the content. Now, why do we start with the content of evangelism? Because the, because the, the title of the sermon, really thematically from this passage, is the defense of evangelism. The Jewish Christians say, why'd you go to give Jesus, why'd you go evangelize the Gentile Christians? So they're criticizing him. And then he defends himself. We have to explain what evangelism is, which we just did, before we can get at the criticism of evangelism. It just is logical. Does that make sense? So we actually have to see what Peter does before we can get to why they criticize and what they're critical about. And so now we'll look at, from the definition of evangelism, we just move logically to the actual practice. This is what gets Peter in hot water It's not theory evangelism. It's actually actual evangelism. Many people, I I can't quantify, but I think this is true. Many people hold to orthodox or right views about what we just talked about, evangelism, whether whether it's to... Missionary missions or whatever, just evangelism, giving out John three sixteen essentially. They hold to a theory view of that, and they could even take a test 
and they have orthodox views, or at least they say they have orthodox views. In other words, they say something, yes, yes, I know the Bible says that. I can quote John 3. I can quote Matthew 11. I believe that. And they hold it here. But I'm calling it theory evangelism. It's different than theory plus practice evangelism. It's the practice evangelism that gets Peter, the servant of Jesus, in hot water, not the theory. Beloved, theory evangelism, if it stays theory evangelism only, just conceptual, you just agree with right things, it never moves to opening the mouth or saying, it doesn't bring anyone to Jesus Christ. No one knows of their sins rightly, no one comes to Jesus Christ savingly with theory evangelism. No one. So if a person says, well, yes, in theory, I believe. Okay, when it's 19 degrees out, which it every once in a while in Florida gets 19, at least here, and your heater quits, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to give you a painting of a fireplace. And then I want you to warm yourself from the painting of a fireplace. Many people have theory Christianity and it never makes it out to practice Christianity. It's the practice Christianity that gets people, Peter, us, in hot water. Not the theory only. I'm not saying that we shouldn't hold to the true things. But if we just say, I believe with evangelizing the lost, I believe with evangelizing the found for that matter, Christians need the good news every day, all day, without break. Do we not? At least I do. Um, what does Jesus say about theory Christianity without practice Christianity? What does he say about it? Jesus says, and I think he says this. Hold me to this one. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what? Finish the next sentence. And do not... Do what I say. That's Luke 6. Jesus says, if you love me, if, aeon, I know that one, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So flip that around. Jesus, I love you so much, I can't even take it. But I'm not going to obey your commandments. That's theory Christianity. That's theory. Theory Christianity. Many people, I, we're just looking conceptually, it's what's being taught, why he's getting criticized. Go to all the nations. I went to the nations. I'm mad at you for going to the nations. We agree with Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 22, only in theory. It's the practice that gets him into a pickle. Many professing Christians have theory faith, faith Protestants. I'm a, I was a Catholic and now I'm a Protestant. Theory, Protestants, Sola Scriptura. Did I tell you I believe Sola Scriptura? I can't even believe it. I believe it so much. But they never read the Bible. Like if I take out a stopwatch and I look at your week, <laughs> that, that hand is not moving. That's theory belief in the Bible. And what, what about prayer? Power in the prayer. Power in prayer. Amen. Amen. I don't want to wave this too much because I'll get fired. But then I get out the stopwatch. How much did you pray? That's theory Christianity. 
Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do? If you love me, you, I promise I'm not a neo-legalist or a neo-nomian or anything like that. Save it. Save it. This is Christ says this. We prove what we are, what we believe, our theory, by what comes out of us. Jesus, James, the half-brother of Jesus says, faith without works is what? Dead faith. And what gets Peter into a pickle is living faith. Jesus says, go to the nations, and he did it. And he's getting criticized for doing it. And I will say this as regards to the practice of evangelism and then his being criticized for evangelizing. There are a couple of reasons why Christians hold to theory Christianity without practice Christianity. And they both refer to the flesh. But the first one is when Jesus says, go tell the nations, and we say, yes, yes, interesting. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I have no intention of telling anybody about Jesus, but I totally agree with that. The first reason why we'd have theory and not practice evangelism is we have a greater love than Jesus. There's something we love more than Jesus Christ. I know we sing that song, or at least Baptists sing this song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. When we are not willing to obey the word of Jesus on something so basic as this. It's a sin, and we have to say why. And the first reason that I will look at is there's a greater love. We're obeying a greater love. And the greater, this is in Matthew chapter 6. And the one that we love is ourself, is our flesh. And so we simply won't. And the second reason, which is related to this, and I think more specifically applied, one of the reasons why Christians hold to theory-only Christianity and they're afraid to do practice Christianity is they think if they put into practice what Jesus says, that will put them at odds with other people. That will get them criticized. Now, beloved, I'm going to say something. That's exactly right. You're spot on. Jesus says you have to do what to your enemies? What? I think he says you have to love them. (laughs) Love your enemies. Um, That's the fear of man. The fear of man says, I will not say and do what Jesus says say and do because if I do... I'll be opposed. I won't be loved. I won't be esteemed. I'll be thought of a fool. And in this instance, he's being criticized. And what is criticism? What is it? It's words. It's, at its core, it's words. And we think, as Christian men, we're men. Let me just talk to all the men. I used to think I was a manly man, and then I hit 44, and I found out that I'm just like a panty waist who's broken and ready to go to heaven at any moment. If you think you're a manly man... Let me just put you in a crucible long enough and I'm going to watch you cry and I'll cry with you. But when we think we're manly men, this is what we think. I would charge the hill for Jesus right now. I'd take a bullet for Jesus. Oh, really? Will you be criticized? 
Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Talk's cheap. Most men, most women, can't deal with being criticized. I'm out. I'm out. Wait a minute, I didn't even punch you. I didn't even shoot you. I didn't chop off your head. I didn't pull a Hebrews chapter 11 yet. You're not in goat skins. I thought you were Vince Lombardi. Oh, wow. You can't deal with being criticized. So part of, the, part of what's going on is the flesh in the professing Christian person says, if I do what Jesus says, I will be criticized. Beloved, that's exactly right. You will. And this is application of what's going on here. Doers of the word of Jesus will be criticized. You can take that to the bank. If, you're gonna, if you say you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him, you are going to be criticized. Guaranteed. By people you love, by people you don't love, you're going to be criticized. But if you say you believe right things and won't do, you can save yourself the criticism of men. Here's the downside of that scheme. If you won't profess Christ before men, as he says, because you're afraid of man, it comes with a downside. Then Christ won't profess you before his Father who is in heaven. So do we, as prof- this is professing Christians who are criticizing Peter, do we want the praise of Christ for fidelity to Christ or do we want the praise of lukewarm worldly quasi-Christians which which so Peter actually does what Christ says to do go to the nations he does it he overcomes his earthly fear of the men and he goes to the Gentiles now he's obedient he gets criticized for it In Galatians chapter 2, he succumbs to his fear. And what does he do? He leaves the Gentiles. So we can go from fidelity to to lack of fidelity to Jesus out of the fear of man. But beloved, I just mentioned that. So when we look at the content of evangelism, the practice of evangelism, it's the practice of Christianity that will get you into a pickle with certainly the world, but with other professing Christians. And so that, that, that's what happens to Peter. I find it interesting that Peter is the one, I don't use really the word race, um, maybe ethnic culture or something like that, but he's the one who kind of breaks the so-called race barrier of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, Cornelius in Acts 10, and, and he recounts it in Acts chapter 11. And the reason I find this interesting is because the apostle Peter is called the apostle to the what? To the Jews. And who's the apostle to the Gentiles? Paul is. Who's the one that gets to break the barrier, so to speak, is Peter. Beloved, we're a Reformed church. I know we hyphenate all over the place. I, I, we're not going to hyphenate in heaven. But we're Reformed, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, yada, yada, yada. One of the things about Reformed people is we say that we love the sovereignty of God. And I put it like that for a reason. Sovereignty of God in theory is awesome. Sometimes the sovereignty of God in practice can be a mind blower. And what the sovereignty of God means is he's the providential governor of all of his creatures and all their actions. And so when we're looking at this, we have the the apostle to the Jews 
is given the privilege of being the one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, how does this work? Think of the sovereignty of God as regards to the business of evangelism, even being Christ's servant. When we say God is sovereign, that means sovereign, sovereign. This is Christ's church. He's the king. We are always the servants. God may say, send Peter. Primarily, you're going to go to the Jews. But you know what? I have this one trip that I want you to make for one family, and I'm going to have you preach one sermon and then back to the Jews. And then Peter, Paul, I'm going to send you over here, and you're going to be busy over there. Beloved, if we can get that idea of Christ as king, master, us as servants, servant servants, servant servants, right? We would do way better in this. Peter is a believer in Jesus, preaching Jesus to the Gentiles like Jesus told him to do. And these Jewish Christians in Judea are criticizing him for doing what Jesus told him to do in part because they forget themselves. These Jewish believers in Jerusalem are saying, hey, why'd you do that? Well, Jesus told me to do. What's my point? We as Christ's people, Peter as Christ's servant, belong to Jesus. Jesus called him. Jesus commissioned him. Jesus sent him out. He stands or he falls before, say it, Jesus. James talks about in James chapter 4, I think, maybe 2, I forget. Um, we're all good at this. We judge the stuffing out of everyone. We do. And the Bible says, be careful about judging another man's servant, <laughs> Right? Because that man doesn't belong to you or that woman doesn't belong to you. He belongs to Christ. And Peter, as the preacher, he stands or falls before Jesus. And beloved, in your service to Jesus, wherever God has placed you and you serve Jesus to the best of your abilities, be careful looking at another brother and sister going, I could do it better. That's a pretty lousy service you're doing there. Be, 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 be careful about that. Part of the thing is, you don't know what that brother and that sister's carrying. You think you could carry what they're doing. You think you could do what they're doing. You think you could do it better. As these brothers and sisters in Jesus are criticizing Peter, they're actually in the wrong. The business of, are there times which we should be critical? Of course, Paul confronts Peter to his face. You're wrong. And Peter says, I'm sorry. But be careful. Be careful. And and be encouraged. Um, You will stand and fall before Jesus Christ, your master. And there won't be another believer sitting when you go to heaven and say, you know, they weren't really very good at all. No. They're going to be behind you in line. And if they're believers, they're going to hear, well done like you. A couple of presuppositions so we have the practice, the, the, the definition of evangelism, the practice of evangelism. The presuppositions of evangelism are that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh and that by belief in him we're saved. And Jesus has called this Jew, Peter, 
Paul for that matter, Jews. And he said, I'm the Messiah of Israel. I'm the Savior. I am the promised one from Galatians, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 28. And in Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And why am I bringing up this? As Peter's out preaching Jesus as the Savior for Jews and Gentiles, does he think he's being an innovator? Does Peter think, I'm coming up with my own religion. This is oftentimes leveled against Paul. So modern, so-called scholars, which means unbeliever, they say that Paul came up with his own new religion about Jesus. Beloved, that's not true. Peter didn't think he was an innovating Jew. Paul didn't think he was an innovating Jew. They didn't think they were making up a new religion about Jesus. They thought, here's the promised one. Abraham looked forward to his day and was glad. Moses wrote about him. John 5, Jesus is all the prophets taught me. They thought they had found the one written about in the Bible, and they did. Now here is the application to this. Imagine you find out the truth about Jesus. Christ is the Savior. He's Emmanuel. And through faith in him, you reunited with the God. You believe that. You find out the truth. But you live among a whole mass of people that think that's a lie. What are they going to think about you? That might be your own mom, your own dad, your own husband, your own wife, your own kids, your own folks. You think Jesus is the way, the truth of the life? No one comes to the Father but through him? You think he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Yes. And, And if you live among a people that say, no, that's not the gospel, they think you're a liar. People that believe the lie think that the truth is the lie. Right? That's Isaiah. That's Romans chapter 1, 18 to the end. So Peter's not the innovator. When they're objecting and saying, we cry foul to the gospel, beloved, those who hold to a corrupt gospel will accuse those who hold to the true gospel of being liars. (laughs) Do Do you see that? So Peter's out there, I found him, I'm preaching the truth. If you believe the lie, you're going to think, no, 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 no. And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, most of the Jews of Christ, he came to his own, his own knew him what? Not. Most of the household of faith that Peter's going to be preaching to and Paul's going to be preaching to, they're apostate. The Judaism of Jesus' day wasn't biblical Judaism. They had fallen away. It was mainly... Paul says in Romans chapter 9, Jesus says in, uh, that it, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, it was a, it was a legal works-based gospel. You're going to work your way in. That's not the gospel. And here comes Peter and says, you're not working your way in. It's Jesus. And they say, no, no, no. It's not all Jesus. It's you. That's why he gets opposed. And then the Lord Jesus Christ gives us another reason why the Jews of P- Peter's day would have said, we object to you telling Gentile sinners that Jesus will save them. We object. Was their religion the religion of the Bible? Jesus is in Mark chapter 7. It was not the religion of the Bible. It was the religion of what? Religious tradition, not Bible. Mark 7, 1 through 13. It's their oral traditions. And Jesus says, you heap all this garbage and, and basically refute the Bible. And here comes Peter saying, I'm going to preach the Bible, the word about Jesus. And the people that believe a lie, they cross foul Jews. That's why. 
The interesting thing about this particular passage is they're not just the unbelieving Jews. We're told in this passage, at the end, they said, wow, I guess the Holy Spirit, I guess God's going to save Gentiles too. These are Jewish believers in Jesus or professors of believers in Jesus. So it's just not the unbelieving Jew. These Jews that are are criticizing Peter for going to the Gentiles are professing Christians. Now think of this. Why would a professing Jewish Christian not want Peter to tell Gentiles that they can be saved in Jesus? What would make them do that? They don't like Gentiles. There was a guy. His name was Jonah. Lee Williams, you can listen to this today. He's a gospel singer. He has a a song, Can't Run, Can't Hide. I recommend this song to you. It's about Jonah. Jonah, God says, go to the Assyrians. They're Gentiles. And in it is going to be an implicit, if you repent, I'm going to have mercy on you. And Jonah says, what? I'm not going. And Jonah actually says in Jonah chapter 4 why he didn't want to go to the Gentiles. You know why he said? I know you are so merciful, God. I knew you would forgive him. That's this. These Jewish believers have found forgiveness of their sins and they hate Gentiles because they're Gentiles. That's racism, beloved. That's racism. They put their race, whatever you want to call it, in addition to their faith in Jesus. This is why it goes circumcision, circumcision. It's something about them plus their faith in Jesus that makes them have a right standing with God. Beloved, that's obnoxious. That is obnoxious. It's nothing about us plus Jesus. It's Jesus that takes Jewish sinners and makes them clean. It's Jesus that takes Gentiles. But these professing Jews did not love the Gentiles. Now think of that. Think of who these people, think of what would have happened to these people in their lives. The moment they believed in Jesus, what happened to these people? They were excommunicated from the synagogue. And in Acts chapter 8 and 9, they're abused by the unbelieving Jews. Now, this is significant. These people were criticized for believing Jesus is the Christ, they were opposed for believing Jesus is the Christ wrongly by people who thought they were right. And now, what do they turn around and do? The very same thing. So I'm from New England, Massachusetts. My mother was born and raised in Plymouth, so Plymouth Plantation. What were some things that our religious forefathers did fleeing from persecution <laughs> when they came over here to worship the Lord Jesus? These should have been the very same people. They suffered criticism. They suffered oppression for Christ's sake. But they turned around and became the oppressor. Why? It's the flesh. It is the flesh that does this. We think, put me in the crucible, I'll be nicer. Not always. If I put you in the crucible and you don't go through that crucible by faith, you're going to be bitter, not better. They forgot themselves. Peter later forgets himself in in Galatians chapter 2. They were racist. They didn't love their neighbor. And I just, I throw this out there. 
Are there people out there, kinds of people, people that are so offensive to you, sinners, that you would be offended if they would be converted in Christ and God calls them your family? Family. You have to eat with them. Would you be offended? They were. And, and, and then look at Peter. They criticize him. Look at his defense. He gives it in an orderly way. And I, I want to show something about Peter. I don't want to go too long, but I, I don't want to miss this. Peter, the church of my youth, does he act like the Pope? Does he like zap them? Remember a Beckett, the movie of Beckett, when a Beckett had power, he said, don't touch me or I'm going to kill you. Did he do it that way? No. He answers calmly and orderly. This he, Peter is the model for preachers when they're being criticized, for Christians when we're being criticized, how we are to respond to those who criticize us for our service to Jesus. How does he do it? No. With calmness, with sweetness of speech, how are we to answer back to our critics? With love, with grace, with wisdom. With people that are arguing against us, we should not argue against them. This is just a practical application of this. This is a man who says, I love Christ and I want to tell others about Christ, but he's governed by the love of Christ. So he responds not to his critics, you and the horse you rode in on. He is gentle to them and loving and kind and gracious. And then I, I, I'll just say in summary, he says, the reason I did what I did, four things. God told me to do it. The Holy Spirit told me to do it. The angel from God told Cornelius I was coming. And that God, the Holy Spirit, just like Pentecost, just like John said, the Holy Spirit would pour out upon us. God did it after they believed. Remember Pentecost, Jesus, uh, uh, Peter's quoting uh, Joel 2. God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all what? mankind all mankind and everyone who believes upon the name of the Lord Jesus go everyone will be what and they hear him say this they start off as his critics he answers Christ like with wisdom and what's the end of it wow that was God's will that's God's will. And they go from criticizing Peter to objecting because they didn't understand it. He corrected their errors. And the conclusion of this is they all worship God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if in our service of the Lord Jesus, wherever we serve, however we serve, and as we have disagreements with brothers and sisters, if at the end when we say, well, why I think if at the end we said well it is it is God's will praise God I, 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 I wish all of the disagreements that we have as Christians we could go to God's word humble ourselves before one another and we conclude whatever discussion with worship oh boy wouldn't that make for a great motivator 
to go tell others about the love of God in Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.